the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them up to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Those of you who are just with us this week, we are in a third part of a multi-part series on the topic of when others need prayer. We launched this series because about three and a half weeks ago, we had discovered that one of our missionaries in the Colorado Springs area, along with 350 other homes, lost their homes as well. And so I wanted you to know that we decided to stop from our study of the Gospel of John just for a little bit to answer the question, when others need prayer. Now to do that, I wanted to speak or teach on prayer. And oddly enough, here we are, back in the Gospel of John again on John chapter 17. This chapter is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And there's so much in it, and it is so rich, that in the uh, months to come, when I get to John 17, I'm going to slow down and cover it over a number of weeks. So today, I'm just going to give you an overview of John chapter 17. Let's talk just a little bit about prayer for some of you that are, are new into this. Some of you that are now discovering what prayer is all about, you might think that prayer is asking and receiving. We ask the Lord and He receives. We receive from Him what we asked. And a lot of times that's the case. But often prayer has many more facets than that. There's one kind of prayer where we just say, Lord, thank you for you and for what you're doing and what you've done in my life. That's one type of prayer. Another type of prayer would be the prayer that we pray for a need that we do have, something that you're going through in your life. And there are many people in the Bible that's described here that have prayed, including the Lord. He, too, is involved in praying about something in his life, talking to God the Father. That's called supplication. And then we have another prayer, which is be more just praise. We're just thanking the Lord and praising him, just talking back to God his attributes and just focusing totally on him, on his whole worship, we might call that. So we're worshiping him. And then there's another kind of prayer that's called intercession. Now, that's a word we don't use very often. Occasionally, we might hear about it when we intercede for someone else. In other words, we speak on behalf of someone else. Attorneys do that when we go to court. They will speak on our behalf to the judge or to the court system. They represent us. Well, we're going to talk a little about intercession here today. But to do that, I don't want you to just have a dusty doctrine on intercession and the life of Christ. I'd like it to be really applied to your life. So for just a moment right now, can you go down memory lane and think of the people who might have requested you to pray for them? Maybe because I'm a pastor and I'm connected to the Internet, I have probably over a dozen emails, listen to this, daily that come in from people or organizations that are specifically requesting prayer for me. We have 14 missionary families besides organizations or agencies that we're praying for. That comes into my office almost daily. I have you that sometimes will send me an email for which I request and I encourage you to be able to send that to me. So I'm hearing that all the time about people who have particular needs in prayer. And so the Lord does that. He allows us to pray because it helps us to stay better connected to people. It's another way to show our aloha to them, our love for them. 
But prayer is not just asking and receiving or even praying on behalf of someone else. Prayer has a lot deeper rationale. Sometimes I define prayer simply as this. It's building a relationship with the Lord by communicating with Him. And we do that and all these other things begin to happen. I like what George MacDonald wrote. It's a wonderful little treatise on the rationale for prayer. An abbreviated version of it simply says this. He says, the rationale for prayer is, communion with God is the one need of the soul beyond all other need. Prayer is the beginning of that communion, of talking with God, a coming to one with Him, which is the sole end of prayer, yea, of existence itself. So even when we're praying for others, it's building our relationship with the Lord. So sometimes the Lord allows things to come into our life so that we will then continue to commune with Him. Sometimes He brings information about the needs of others into our life. So as we pray for them, it helps our intimacy with the Lord as well. So it's kind of like one hand goes up to the Lord and the other hand reaches out for someone else and we all meet together in one big communion of prayer talking to the Lord about each other. Maybe what you'd like to do now is to pull out your notes for today that you have in your worship folder and write down the names of some folks that have some significant needs. I have a dear friend named Randy who is basically hermetically sealed at the City of Hope. And he's there because of a stem cell transplant and they're doing some work with him now and he's at the lowest point. I received a letter from a lady who has been married over 50 years and her husband now has moved out and decided that he needed to have a soulmate at the end of his life and it wasn't going to be her. I received another request from someone by the name of Jasmine who they're going to, uh, she's been induced into a coma and they're going to try to bring her out of the coma tomorrow and that family is pleading for prayer and the surrounding situations. I have another person who has surrendered their life to the Lord and now they're finding that their health is deteriorating, they're bleeding, they're going to the doctor, they don't know what's happening, severe headaches. And besides all that, the legal system has caught up with them and they're incarcerated at this point. And so now they're wondering now, should I still serve God? Look what's happening. Is God real in my life? Now those are pretty dramatic. Some of yours may not be that dramatic. But I think all of us have come to a point that people do have needs and we should do something about that in the area of prayer. And I'd like to speak to that. But to do that, we have to answer those very important questions. And the first question is, do we want to learn how to pray for others the way God wants us to pray? And then finally, if we do want to learn how to pray for others, will we use his book as our model, our message for learning how to pray? So this is going to be our prayer manual, our lesson book, we might say, about prayer and how important that might be for all of us. Well, we've covered some aspects about different people who prayed, but I wanted to go to the, the one who could teach us the most about prayer, which would be the Lord. Now, John 17 is actually, in my opinion, I will define it this way. They would call it the high priestly prayer because Jesus is the high priest who talks to God the Father. I would also reduce it and say this. This is the true, authentic Lord's Prayer. So if you want to write in your margin, this would be the Lord's Prayer because this is the Lord praying. Now, most of you, when you hear the Lord's Prayer, including that great song called the Lord's Prayer, they will take you to Matthew, and that's another whole passage of Scripture. I believe it's the Lord, and He's teaching about prayer, but He's teaching disciples and then you and me how to pray. So maybe it's the Lord's Prayer because He's teaching us how to do it, but really the Lord praying is John chapter 17, and He's going to do that. Now, before I get into the Lord's Prayer, I want to explain a little bit about intercession because when you're thinking about that person, that name you wrote on your, your worship folder there, and you're thinking about that person and you want to intercede for them, you want to pray on their behalf, you want to take their petition on their behalf to God the Father, if we're going to do it like the Lord, He's our model, then we would then learn all about intercession. 
So briefly from last week, there were three things we learned about intercession. Two of them we learned today we're going to finish up with. The first one is when he interceded for us on the cross, what he did, he went to the cross, he took all of our sin on himself, representing us in our sin to God the Father. He paid our sin debt, rose again from the dead to satisfy the payment that God required in order for our sins to be paid. Now how does that fit into prayer? It fits into it this way. If intercession is representing someone else, then it's simply this. When you pray for that person, whomever it might be, if you will, for that moment, emotionally, mentally, as much as you humanly possible can do, if you will take on their need as if it is your need, as best as you can, you own that need for yourself. If they've lost a job, feel for a moment what it would be like for you to go to work and get a pink slip. If they found out that they've got cancer, what would it be like if you went to the doctor and they said, the diagnosis is cancer for you? And so you're owning that for that moment. It will help you to identify best with that person, perhaps in a way that will bring them to the Lord in prayer. That's intercession. The second thing that he did is he didn't just intercede only and it ended there. He continually makes intercession for us, even to today. After he resurrected, he's in heaven making intercession for us now. Now, I think that's important because while we can pray one time for the person, it might be a good model to look at Christ that he continually prays for others. Now, in a minute, we're going to see what did he pray for because uh, you'll notice he didn't pray that people would get a job or necessarily that they'd get over cancer. He prayed for other things, and we're going to learn what that is in a moment. But the point still being is that he is praying for them. Then there's another caveat in this because we have God the Father that's hearing all of these. You have God the Son who's interceding, and now we have the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is part of the triumphant, the Trinity, and so what is his role? His role now is this, that when we pray and we don't know how to pray, maybe the best way to pray or exactly what that person is going through, we now are saying we're going to do the best we can, we're praying, but when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit then will pray in his own groanings. It's not us having another language, it's not us praying in tongues, it's the Spirit groaning, and generally that groaning is in context because of the sin that's being done. So when we're praying for someone, yes, we want to pray that they might get a job, and we might want to pray that life is a little easier for them, maybe with their health, but the reality of it is the greatest need they have is a spiritual need because those needs are going to be eternal. Now, stay with me. If they're lost, that's an eternal need that they have. They need to know Christ as Savior, and if they don't come to Christ, they'll spend eternity separated from Him. So they have a tremendous need of being able to enter into a relationship with the Lord. As a Christian... We, too, are going to have to give an account of our lives, not to see whether or not we get into heaven, but the rewards that we have. And so when we do things that are not right in our life, and there's sin in there that separates us from the Lord, that's a horrible thing for us even as Christians. So part of our prayer is that people would then become a fully devoted follower of Christ, and so we would pray for them as well. So now, we have the example of Christ on the cross, once and for all, paid for sin. And then continually, we're eternally secure in Christ because he continually prays for us so that our sins are paid for no matter what happens. He's our advocate before God the Father. Now the question is, if we were to pray like Christ, who did he pray for? And that might be a question we could ask. Who should we pray for if we're going to pray like Christ? And then when he prayed for others, what are some of the things that he prayed for? So as we look at Christ, we're going to then look at how he prayed. So let me frame John 17 for a moment in the context of the Gospel of John. I think it'll help you. The Gospel of John spends most of its time at the early part of the life of Christ and at the end of the life of Christ. The last week of his life is found in John 13 all the way through John chapter 21. So there's a lot of material there dealing with the last week of his life. What we're going to look at in John 17, if you will look at verse 1 here, if you will, for just a moment. John 17, verse 1, just a little phrase. It says, Jesus spoke these things 
and then he lifted up his eyes. Now, what did he speak? And then he goes into his prayer. Well, what's just happened is that he finished up with the Lord's Supper. He's washed the disciples' feet. We've seen that Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, went out to betray Christ to the Jews, to the Jewish leaders. And so now he's taught his disciples some bit about prayer. That's the last part of verse 16. He spoke those things, and so now that's over with. Last Supper's done. The washing of the feet is done. Judas is out of the picture. He's done his teaching. So he pauses right then to pray. I do not believe he was yet in the garden yet to pray. So he was now talking to God the Father before he went to the garden and before the final betrayal. Now, when I read that, I got thinking, all right, if you were going to go through a time that you knew that you were going to face the most horrific challenge of your life, you had to stand before a, a superior to represent something you've done in your life, you knew that you were going to a doctor and you're going to hear a report that may not be well, some of you that already know you're prepped for surgery, what would you be praying for? I would be thinking he might pray for strength, he might pray for other issues, but he didn't. He prayed for something that was very important. First of all, who did he pray for? Now, I don't have time to unpack all of this. I will in future weeks. But verses 1 through verse 5, Jesus begins to pray for himself. Now, he did not need to confess sin, but it was a time for him to, to again, in prayer and communion with God the Father, say things that would show to us the unity that he had with God the Father. And what I would say to you and me, that when you begin your prayer, before you pray for others, that you would get in unity with the Lord. And the greatest thing that will keep us from being in unity with the Lord is going to be sin in our life. So for us, it would be, Lord, you are so righteous and holy and great. And when we throw the light of his holiness on our life, it will then reveal those tiny little specks of sin. Now, for some of us, it might be carrying deep sin in our life. It will be very easy to see. And for others, it says, you know, I think I live a pretty good life. And that holiness will reveal those motives that may not be right. Maybe you're doing the right things, but for the wrong motive. So you're going to be getting ready for your communion with the Lord. And then verses 6 through verse 19, he then talks to the Father about his disciples that were there on the earth. In a moment, I'll tell you what he talked to them about. But right now, I just wanted you to know he's talking about his disciples. Those would be the people that are going to take his legacy on to the next generation. Maybe that's a model for us that while we clean ourselves off, the first people we're going to be praying for are those that are the closest to us, that have the greatest needs, could be our maid, our children, the people that we're discipling or mentoring, the people within our business or the people we're responsible for in leadership. In any capacity, we are going to bring them up before the Father. In a minute, I'll tell you what he didn't pray. All right, then number three, after he prayed to the Father about himself and he prayed about his disciples, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time, he literally prayed for you and me. He prayed for the believers that were in the future. To me, that is, it's so big, I can't even wrap my whole mind around it. I know that I was in the mind of God before I was born. I also believe God knew that I would be a Christian today. So I believe that 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was there, before he went to the cross, he was already praying for me, knowing that I would become a believer later on and for certain aspects about my life, which we're going to learn about in this particular uh, chapter of the Gospel of John. So essentially, here's what he's doing. He is praying for you and for me. And to me, that's pretty huge. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to get them out right now to John 17, because I want to show you some things that he did not pray for. And to do that, you're going to see three phrases that are often kind of linked together. It might help you see this a little bit better. So first of all, you might want to look at verse 9. Jesus says, I ask on their behalf, and he says, I do not ask on behalf of the world. And all I wanted you to know at this point is that he's not praying for those people who are lost at this time. He's not praying for those who did not know the Lord. Secondly, 
Here's what he did not pray for, verse 15. He says, I do not ask you to take them, that would be the disciples in context, out of the world. So he's praying for them, not that they would be relieved from the challenges that they're going to face, or that the challenges would be removed from them, or they'd even be taken to heaven to get out of all their problems. He's praying for one thing, go to the rest of the verse. He says, I pray now that they will be delivered or kept from the evil one. And so maybe for some of us, for just a moment right now, think about those people that are going through horrific challenges in their life right now. Now, I hope you don't think that I'm a fatalist, and I sure hope you don't think that I, I, I want pain in anybody's life. I don't want pain in anybody's life. I don't want pain in my own life. But I wanted you to know that he knew that these disciples that he was praying for here, that they were going to go through horrific pain. We know that all of them went through martyrdom. All of them died through martyrdom except one. Oddly enough, was the Gospel of John written by John. He was boiled in oil. He came out of the oil, came off the Isle of Patmos, and he wrote a lot of the material we have today. So while he was martyred in the boil, boiled in the uh, pot of oil, he did not die from that. The rest of them all died a martyr's death. But he never once said, deliver them from that. Deliver them from the jails that they would be in. Deliver them from the rejection. Deliver them from the stones that would be thrown at them. Deliver Paul from being in, uh, uh, a night and a day in the deep, nearly drowning. He didn't say deliver them from that. Get them out of the world. Get the problems away from them. But he did say this. In the midst of whatever they're going through, that they may be delivered from the evil one, from Satan. So maybe right now as we're carrying the weight in our prayer life of all these people, and sure we want the suffering to be relieved, and we're going to pray for that. We're going to learn some things about prayer here in, in weeks to come. But right now, the greatest prayer that we could pray, that in the midst of their suffering, before that they're delivered out of that or from that, that Satan would not be doing anything that would hinder them in any way from experiencing the greatest lessons about God they possibly could learn. Let that sink in for a moment. We're going to pray that Satan doesn't do anything to steal any of the seed, perhaps, of God's word that would be in their life during this time of growth so they could experience the very best from the Lord they possibly could experience. Now, number three. He didn't pray for the world. He didn't pray for the disciples to be delivered out of the world. But here's what he did do. He did pray for you and me. If you will, verse 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, meaning the disciples, but for those also who will believe on me through their word. Well, as I went through this material, I found that there was a running thread through all of John 17. And there are many running threads. But I believe the big thing he's praying here more than anything, one of the words that seems to be found throughout John 17 is simply this. It's so important. That the disciples, because it's in the context of their passage, their section, as well as all of us today, because he prayed for us in the future, was simply this. That we would be unified one with the other. Now that is very simplified to be in unity. So now you have to ask the question, if that's what he prayed for us, why did he pray that for us? Because connected to that whole concept of unity with one another is the concept of being unified with God the Father. And the result of all of that unity, watch this, is so beautiful, is that the world would look at this and they would see something that would be so supernatural that the world could not manufacture in any way possible and that through that we will more easily come to know Christ as Savior and that we will have that intimacy with God. So this unity is absolutely so huge in our life. I got thinking when the Lord was there praying for his disciples and for people like you and me. Can you just with, with me for just a moment in your mind? Here he is praying, God the Father. He's talking to him. And who do you think was in front of them? Because he was with them at that time. He'd be looking at Peter over here. And as he saw Peter, he thought, Peter is going to reach so many people for God. 
So many Jews are going to come to know the Lord as their Savior through Peter. So many churches are going to be started through Peter and the people he's going to disciple. So he's looking at Peter as he begins to pray. And he prays that there'd be unity there. And then he looks over here at John and he realizes that John is going to see so many people in Asia Minor that's going to come to know the Lord as their Savior. So he's praying for John. And then he sees the, the vacancy where Judas Iscariot would have been. But because he was the Rumian left, he's now seeing where that hole is going to be filled by the Apostle Paul. And he's thinking about him already ahead of time and praying for him as a future disciple, knowing that he'll be starting so many churches in Europe and it's going to spread all over. And then we have our church here today. And so I'm looking at all these people that he's praying for. And the one thing he's praying for is that they would be unified and how important that really would be to them. Well, if you will, take out your notes, because if you'll notice, the first one is to be rightly unified. I need to park on that just a little bit, because if they're going to be right with the Lord, what does it mean to be rightly unified with Him? That's such a key phrase, to be rightly unified with Him. Now, when we're talking about rightly unified, we're not talking about that we all have to be a part of the same organization. We all have to get all the denominations together that we all have to compromise our theology and the greatest way we have unity is all you have to do is love God, hate Satan, and we're unified. That is not how God operates, that unity is far deeper than all of that. It says a whole lot more about us walking together in love and faith. Let me go back for just a moment. Maybe, and this is Ponzi's, I mean, and this is my opinion here, it could be that the Lord is now wanting to teach this whole thing of unity and he's doing it because there's an object lesson of what's going on at this very moment. Do you all remember who Matthew was? Matthew represented Rome as a tax collector. A little-known disciple who was there, not much written about him, we know, is also a Simon. It wasn't Simon Peter, it was Simon the Zealot. He was one who was a Gentile. He was so zealous because he was against Rome. And so now you have someone who's pro-Rome, someone who's against Rome, and is part of your team right here, and you wonder how that unity must have fit together. So you can see as you look over this group, they were having some challenges. Then you had James and John who were vying to see who's going to be first in the kingdom. And while that was going to happen, you saw the other disciples that were jealous of these guys trying to be the first in the kingdom. So you had disunity going on there. And so the Lord's heart is broken when he sees these kinds of things. And he realizes unless we get on the same page together, quote, the page of biblical accuracy and sound doctrine, what's going to happen then is there's going to be conflict in our life. And may I add one more thing? Knowing sound doctrine only makes you theologically, mentally, intellectually with sound orthodoxy, but that doesn't mean we're living it out. Now we have to live it out. And that's what he's really speaking to here. So it's the right relationship with one another. Oh, how important it is to do that, how that original group and how the future group needed to come together. I did some research to find out how many different denominations there are. Would you like to jot on your piece of paper your guess of how many denominations there are today? At University of California, Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara, there's a researcher there by the name of J. Gordon Meltons, and he just put out a new addition to the Encyclopedia of American Religion. I got this out of AP, and so here's what he said. He said that in his list there are 2,630 denominations, 2,630 denominations, in two dozen informal families. There's 116 Roman Catholic flocks, hundreds of Pentecostal flocks, and according to a January Associated Press report, among the least mainstream are the following. You have the John F. Kennedy worshipers. It's a church which actually believes, I'm quoting now, that it can pray to the late president, John F. Kennedy, and can be cured both of congenital defects as well as terminal diseases. Then you have the denomination known as the nudist Christian church of the Blessed Virgin Jesus. 
I don't have any more information. I didn't want to search any further than that. <laughs> then you have the Church of God Anonymous, the Church of the New Song, which once offered porterhouse steaks for communion. Then you had 22 other denominations that believe in UFOs, including the clone Happy Aurelians. And in addition, it talked about the Church of the Ministry of the Universal Wisdom, which is a church that looks for flying saucers that are going to come. And then there's the church of what's happening now, and it's obviously a more contemporary church. And then we get into the one that's closer to home. Out of the list of 2,630 denominations, he found 30 different denominations calling themselves Baptists alone. Seventh-day Baptists, Two Seed in the Spirit Baptists, Presbyterian Baptists, General Baptists, Regular Baptists, American Baptists, Northern Baptists, Southern Baptists, Conservative Baptists, and the list goes on. And just uh, last week, I was having breakfast with one of our guys, and he was telling me that he had a relative on the mainland that goes to a church, and the name of that church is called the Scum of the, Scum of the Earth Church. And I haven't Googled that one either. That one must be pretty fantastic as well. I'm not dissing all of them. I'm just going to tell you how that different people want to go through Scripture and to look at all the different things that they have there and how fractured they really are. And so he says that we need to be rightly unified. I want to talk about that. What would be, if we're rightly unified, what would it begin to look like? Hold your place in John 17 and look, if you will, at Philippians. And this will be the only other passage other than John we're going to look at today. But I want you to look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This is a result of what being unified rightly could look like. I know I'm reducing it to one verse, so it sounds like I'm proof texting this. And I apologize. I don't have enough time to totally unpack it like I'd like to. Why am I giving this to you again? If you want to pray for those that are going through trouble in their life, you want to pray for unity. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.